Um, I want to start with uh, Passover just by talking about festivals overall and doing um, uh, uh, just a brief overview of the calendar because Carmelina told me to. And um, just to say, in the, um, <laughs> in the Bible um, and the Apocrypha as well, Old Testament Apocrypha, there are eight Jewish festivals that are kept today. There are some more minor ones. There's eight basic ones. Uh, two of them really we've looked at already a bit, which is um, the Day of Atonement, but also the Jewish New Year, and they sort of go together. Then there are three major festivals, apart from those, and three minor ones. The three major ones are in the Torah, or Pentateuch. They're the three times a year that um, uh, Israelite males were to go to the temple, basically in thanksgiving to God. They're really harvest festivals where you were going to God to say thank you for giving us our food, clothing, shelter, everything we have. Two of those festivals are exactly six months apart. The first is Passover, which goes for a week. And then the second is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is exactly six months later and also goes for a week. Um, if, you, if you ever think about holidays, four weeks holidays, that kind of thing in the Bible, there's two weeks, one week and one week. And that's it. But anyway, uh, the third of the main festivals is Pentecost, and that's 50 days after Passover. And uh, that's only one day, that festival. The three minor festivals are Purim, which we're going to look at tomorrow from the book of Esther. Uh, Hanukkah, which is from the Apocrypha, 1 and 2 Maccabees. And uh, Tisha B'Av, which commemorates the destructions of both temples and is referred to in Zechariah, chapters 7 and 8. In terms of the calendar, um, the Jewish calendar is a lunar, not a solar calendar. So um, when you get a leap year, they don't add a day, they add a whole month. And so because of that, uh, the dates float around. So Easter follows Passover. So you might have noticed the date for Easter floats around a lot. That's because it's following that lunar, not the solar calendar. In terms of our calendar, the first festival of the year is the last one in the Jewish calendar, which is Purim that we'll look at tomorrow, so that occurs around March. Uh, around April is Passover, same time as Easter. Uh, May or June is Pentecost, 50 days later. Around August is um, Tisha B'Av. September, October, you then get this whole spate of festivals. So there's the Jewish New Year, um, then nine days later there's Day of Atonement, five days later there's Feast of Tabernacles, which goes... For a week, so those festivals are coming up in two weeks' time, and then in December around Christmas, there's Hanukkah, but it again it floats around. So sometimes it's at early December, sometimes around Christmas. Anyway, that's just a, a quick overview of the festivals. We're going to look at Passover, which is the one I think you'll be most familiar with. Uh, I'm not only going to talk about what the Bible says about Passover, though, but also I'm going to say a bit about a modern Jewish Passover, uh, both to start with, and I'll come back to it. And um, the reason for that is that uh, many churches I've come across are starting to hold demonstration Jewish Passovers uh, or are asking people like me or Jeff to hold demonstration Jewish Passovers. So I want to talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, Jewish people, if you haven't quite made the links, celebrate Passover at Easter time because the Last Supper that Jesus celebrated um, with his disciples is a Passover meal, so Easter and Passover um, are basically the same, same thing and at the same time. 
And I suppose the idea churches have is that if you see a, a Jewish Passover meal, they're thinking maybe that will help us as Christians understand things better like the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper or Jesus' death or will give us some kind of deeper insight into the Christian faith. I'll come back to that in a little while. So what does happen in a Jewish Passover? You'll need your outline and um, particularly on the back of the outline of uh, given you to take away, don't, don't read it now, but uh, to take away and read that list of 15 things of what happens in a Jewish Passover service. Basically, there is a synagogue service at Passover, but almost nobody goes to that. What everyone goes to is a big dinner uh, at night, which is almost the equivalent of Christmas lunch. So this is the one huge Jewish family get-together for the year, Usually extended family, so up to 30 people, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody. So um, how, how many used to come for, for the one you went to? About 30? Yeah. Dozens, yeah. Dozens, yeah. Mine, there'd be about 15, cousins and so on. So it's the big family get-together. Um, same as Christmas, everyone fights, argues, all that sort of thing. Um, it's a late night because basically what you do is you have this book uh, here. This is mine that I've had since a teenager uh, called a Haggadah, which is you read the whole thing through that night. It's the um, uh, very sort of nicely decorated so you don't fall asleep. Uh, it's, it's basically going through the story of the Exodus along with some prayers, psalms, um, stories from the rabbis, some of which are good, some not so good, uh, but going through the story of the Exodus and you read that through uh, in the night. So it's, it's, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, Unfortunately, what happens is to be kosher, so to speak, most uh, Jewish families read it in Hebrew and nobody understands a word that's being said unless they were born in Israel, basically. Um, so uh, that's a bit sad. Sometimes if fa Jewish families can't read Hebrew too well, they might alternate uh, one bit in Hebrew, one bit then in English and so on. That's then like having the Exodus story and ripping out every second page. So again, it makes little sense. Um, so most Jewish people actually don't get the story of Passover even though they're actually reading it on the night. So it's a bit sad. I remember my mum coming to our place a few years ago uh, where we read the whole thing through, some in Hebrew, but if we did Hebrew we'd always do the English as well, did the whole thing through in English and it was, she was like, wow, that's interesting, that makes sense. And, you know, <laughs> had no idea it was like that, so yeah, a bit sad. There are a lot of um, misconceptions that Christians do have of Jewish people today, and I've only hinted at that. I could talk for hours on it. But the classic Christian misconception of Passover is that Jewish people are eating lamb at their meal. Jewish people hear that and go, what? Where'd you get that from? And again, that's because they don't know or read the Bible. Uh, Jewish people eat chicken at their Passover meal. Yeah, and I know, so all the Christians are going, what? Chicken? Um, <laughs> If, if you want to know why, it's, it's basically because in Eastern Europe, in the last 500 years, Jewish people have been very poor and they couldn't afford lamb, they could afford chicken. But anyway, they eat chicken. Uh, let me, uh, if you want to have a look at this sheet now, briefly uh, just go through a few things from that. Uh, one of the big things is number 11, which is dinner. That's where you eat the main meal. So it doesn't come till number 11, it's pretty late, but um, that's the one everyone's looking forward to. Uh, there are four cups of wine that are drunk through the night. Well, you don't drink the whole cup, you have a sip from each of four cups um, and uh, they're scattered throughout the service. 
There are bits of symbolic foods that, that you eat and are explained. So to give an example, at point number three, early on you have some parsley and you dip it in salt water. Okay? The parsley is representing greenery because Passover is at springtime and the salt water is representing the tears of the Israelite slaves. Okay? So there's symbolic stuff like that. Or number nine, you eat some bitter herbs, which is, was there in our reading, and that's meant to remind of the bitterness of slavery. Uh, point number eight, the one before it, you eat unleavened bread, matzah is the Hebrew word, and uh, as in our passage, that's to remember the haste with which they had to leave Egypt so there wasn't time for the bread to rise, and so on. Uh, the other big point, really, though, besides the main meal is point number five, and uh, point number five is where you recite the Passover story. So that's where most of... Um, this book is read as you go through the story of the Passover. Uh, Point four I'm going to um, raise a couple of times is an interesting one. Uh, Everybody eats unleavened bread at different times through the night, but in the middle of the table, uh, one of the ceremonial things there is these three extra big, thick pieces of unleavened bread. They're separated by a cloth each. So there's those three pieces of uh, unleavened bread. They're, they're like a big sayo that's hard. And um, you take out the middle one at point four, you break it in half, and then the head of the household hides half of it to... It's basically, I think, to give the kids something to do. The kids then have to try and find it like hide-and-seek. And down at point number 12, the first point after the main meal, uh, whichever one of the children has found it, ransoms it back to the head of the Household who gets the half piece of um, unleavened bread back. Now, I've uh, been to Passover demonstrations put on by Messianic Jews where they spiritualise elements of the Jewish Passover. So they'll, they'll take at point four those three pieces of unleavened bread and they'll say that represents the Trinity because there's three of them. And they'll say the middle piece represents Jesus. His body was broken for us. That's why it's broken And when you look at the unleavened bread, there's actually even, it's striped, and they'll refer to Isaiah 53, by his stripes we're healed. There's holes in it. They'll say that represents that he's pierced for our transgressions, and so on. So I'll come back to this, but this is the sort of thing I mean, that there'll be a demonstration Passover, and elements of the Passover meal will be used to explain uh, Jesus and his death for us. One of the problems uh, with this, though, is that, that sort of interpretation that's Christian actually has nothing to do with the Jewish Passover. So as you can imagine, that's got nothing to do with why Jewish people have three pieces of unleavened bread and so on. Um, And there's also bits that are always left out in a demonstration Passover, such as at point number 14, the curse upon Gentiles, one of my favourites. But that's often left out at churches, I notice. Anyway... I don't really mean it, Bae. It's actually a psalm that's read out, but anyway. So it's in your Bibles. Sorry. Anyway, um, that's, that's enough of the Jewish Passover meal. I'll come back to it later. Let's have a look at the Bible and what it says about a biblical Passover. Uh, the Passover basically is the tenth plague on Egypt. And God saves the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt through this tenth and final plague. So um, the verses will be up on the overhead, or if you've got your Bibles, uh, back to chapter 11, chapter before what we read. Chapter 11, verse 1, 
says, God had said to Moses, I'll bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he'll let you go from here. So the tenth plague is what makes Pharaoh let the Israelites go. And then if you look at uh, chapter 11, verse 4, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says to him, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. So the tenth plague is the death of all firstborn, all people, all animals. Now, chapter 12 that we read looks at what the Israelites need to do during this tenth plague and uh, leading up to it. So chapter 12, verse 3, God says to Moses, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, the first month, Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And then down to verse 6, he says, Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they're to eat the meat roasted over fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast, unleavened bread. And then verse 11. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, note verse 7 especially, uh, where it says they're to take the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And... That's repeated in verse 21 when Moses gives the instructions to the elders. He summons the elders and says to them, Go at once, select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Okay, so during the tenth plague leading up to it, that's what the Israelites do, kill a lamb eat it, put the blood on the top and sides of the door frames of their houses. Now, why do they put the blood on the door frames? And what does that have to do with the tenth plague of the death of the firstborn? Well, verses 12 to 13, I think, tell us. God says, On that same night I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Uh, Also, it's repeated two more times. Uh, Verse 23, which I would take as the key verse for chapter 12. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And then also a third time, verse 26, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? What's the Passover about? Then tell them it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So those verses tell you what Passover means. Passover means that when God strikes down the Egyptians in the 10th plague, 
the plague will pass over the houses of the Israelites. God will pass over them. He won't let the plague strike the Israelites when he strikes the Egyptians. So the Israelites are spared from God's judgment. Their firstborn people and animals are not struck down as the Egyptians are and the blood on the top and sides of their doorframe is a sign to God that averts his judgment and wrath from falling on them so that they're spared it and his judgment passes over them. And that is actually how Israel's freed from Egypt. So as the 10th plague strikes the Egyptians and they're spared from it, that's what ends up making them be released from slavery in Egypt. So if you look down at verse 29, here's where the 10th plague comes. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you've said and go. So this is the point where Pharaoh finally gives in because of the tenth plague and says, Go, that's it, everyone, all of you, animals, everything, go. And so just a few verses on in verse 37 is the Exodus itself, where it says the Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And it's summarised in verse 40. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. So that's how God rescued the Israelites from Egypt. It was by the 10th plague. Now, uh, if you're Jewish like me, you don't have much of an ethical problem with this. God striking down the firstborn of the Egyptians is not really a problem. In fact, you celebrate, although I must say during the Passover um, service for modern Jewish people, you do remember the suffering of the Egyptians. So you're not missing it, but the Egyptians are the bad guys. They've enslaved the Israelites for hundreds of years ruthlessly killed their firstborn children so uh, there's no ethical problem here for Jewish people and if God had done this to the Nazis for instance half a century ago I don't think we'd be having any problem with that either so Jewish people are fine with this happening but the rabbis themselves actually then point out some of the difficulties with that so they say what about the slaves children who were killed so it's not like the slaves children in Egypt were persecuting the Israelites So how come their firstborn get killed? What about the animals? The animals weren't persecuting the Israelites. Why are their firstborn animals killed? So is it right that God judges everybody like that when they weren't actually involved, probably? And furthermore, the rabbis don't say this, this is me saying it, but were the Israelites also innocent and perfect? So was it the case that every Egyptian was wicked and every Israelite was without sin? Hardly. So how come none of the Israelites cop God's judgment and every Egyptian cops it instead? Well, the Bible's clear from the start that all people are sinful and all people deserve God's judgment. So all the Egyptians are sinful and all the Israelites are sinful and they all deserve the judgment of God, but God spares the firstborn of the Israelites. 
Not because they're not sinful, but they're given a substitute judgment. An animal is judged in their place. Its blood marks their door. And that death penalty for their firstborn is placed on the animal instead. So the animal's life here atones for their sin or it symbolises that, that the penalty for death has been paid. God sees that the penalty for sin has been paid when he sees the blood and his judgment that they deserve passes over them and they're spared it. Now, of course, uh, as I said in the last talk, an animal's blood can't actually atone for the sins of people. We know, of course, that that's Jesus. And so later in the New Testament, God talks about sending the Messiah who will atone for the sins of people. So the classic chapter is Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Bar, bar, do, bar, bar. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So even today, as Jewish people keep the Passover, they look backwards and forwards. They look backwards to God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, thanking God for rescuing them, but they always look forward as well to the ultimate salvation of the Messiah coming who will pay for their sins. So it's no surprise really that when Jesus comes, he uses the Passover meal to explain his death. So at the Last Supper, Luke chapter 22, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, unleavened bread, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So Jesus is saying it's his death that atones for our sins, that spares us from God's judgment. And Paul summarises that in really the the classic verse in the New Testament on this, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 where he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, what's he saying with that? Well, the blood on the door frames of the houses of the Israelites is a sign to God's destroying angel. He sees the blood that has atoned for sin and the angel of death passes over that house. No destructive plague touches them because of that blood. So they're spared God's judgment. This is saying we're sinful, we stand under God's judgment, we should and do deserve God's judgment, we should be judged, but because God loves us, he sends Jesus to die for us, to pay for our sins in our place, and God sees Jesus' blood marking our door, as it were, and when judgment day comes, God's judgment passes over us. We're spared God's judgment because of Jesus' death on the cross. The song we sang just before by Martin Luther, put to modern music by Rob Smith, uh, says, Hear the true paschal lamb we see, whom God so freely gave us. He died on the accursed tree, so strong his love to save us. See, his blood does mark our door. Faith points to it. Death passes over. The murderer cannot harm us. Hallelujah. So it's captured that truth, that Jesus is the Passover lamb 
whose death atones for our sins so that when judgment day comes, as faith points to Jesus' blood, we trust in his death, judgment will pass over us. Now, because of the fulfilment in Christ, the Passover is fulfilled in Jesus' death, then it means that we're no longer bound to keep festivals like Passover. So even when the temple was still standing, we weren't bound, if you were Jewish or Gentile, to keep such festivals. So in Colossians chapter 2, um, I think these are classic verses as well, Colossians 2, 16 to 17, here's what Paul says about any festival. He says, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So he's saying all festivals of the Bible find their reality are fulfilled in Jesus, in his death and resurrection. So you have the reality of the Passover lamb in Jesus. Uh, I mentioned um, in the last talk that the Old Testament festivals, the law, the tabernacle... It's a bit like a blueprint for a building. It's a real blueprint representing a real building. So the substance representing the reality, but it's not the actual building. And the Passover is like a picture or a blueprint of what the Messiah would do when he came, which uh, Isaiah talked about 750 years before, that he'd shed his blood for us to atone for our sins so that on judgment day we would be spared God's judgment. That's the reality the biblical Passover is pointing to it as a shadow to the substance. Another way uh, you might think of it is that the Old Testament festivals or law is a bit like an ambassador that gets you ready for a coming king. So once the king comes, the ambassador's job has been done. And once the king's arrived, if you ignored the king and you just kept chatting to the ambassador, the ambassador would be saying, haven't you listened to a word I've said? Because if you were listening to the ambassador, you would now be talking to the king because that's what he was getting you ready for. So going back to keeping an Old Testament Passover, even if you could, would be a bit like continuing to talk to the ambassador and ignore the king because now the king has come and has fulfilled the Passover. So I think there's very little to be gained from a Jewish Passover. Uh, When churches ask me to do a Passover demonstration, I usually give them a talk like this rather than the demonstration. (laughs) But I I suspect that many Christians I have talked to think, at least in the back of their mind, that somehow there might be some secret Jewish knowledge or something that will really add depth and help us to understand Jesus' death. So if we saw a Jewish Passover festival, that would help us understand the stories of the gospel and Jesus and what he's done. And maybe having one at church would help us. But first of all, a modern Jewish Passover has very little to do at all with a biblical Jewish Passover. So that's one problem. Secondly, the biblical Passover, even if you could do it now, which you can't, has been completely fulfilled in Jesus. And I think there's a tendency amongst Messianic Jews who are doing these Passover festivals to spiritualise a modern rabbinic Jewish Passover to make it Christian. So I explained earlier how you've got these three pieces of unleavened bread in the centre of the table at a modern Jewish Passover. Obviously, that's not there in the Bible, but that's one of many rabbinic Jewish practices. And the three pieces of unleavened bread have 
um, very little to do with Christianity or with a biblical Passover. They're there for uh, their own rabbinic reasons. And so what Messianic Jews are doing is taking a rabbinic, non-biblical practice and saying it's fulfilled in Jesus. And it's arbitrary. There's three pieces of matzah, unleavened bread, and they're saying that represents the Trinity. But you could then take three of anything, anywhere, and say that represents the Trinity. It's purely arbitrary. So what we're doing now is Jesus is fulfilling the Passover in a secret, hidden meaning in an extra-biblical, rabbinic, Jewish practice that we've arbitrarily spiritualised, if you got all of that. Rather than saying Jesus is the Passover lamb whose death on the cross fulfills the Old Testament and spares us from God's wrath to come. And I guess what I want to say to anyone here, especially but to, to everybody, but anyone who's thinking maybe there was something in those Jewish festivals today, that you already have it all as a Christian. And that's what you need to understand. You have the reality in Jesus. His death has paid for your sins. You can be 100% sure of going to heaven because when judgment day comes, the judgment's already fallen on Jesus and you'll be spared God's wrath as it passes over you. There are no secret hidden meanings in a Jewish Passover or any other festival that will help you as a Christian. And in my opinion, a Messianic Passover is actually dangerous because it's encouraging you as Christians, Gentile Christians in particular, to see the fulfilment of the Passover in rabbinic modern rituals rather than in the Old Testament and the Bible. And those are two very different things. You have everything you need already in the death of Jesus for you. But even more than that, as I've hinted a couple of times Even if you wanted to keep a real Passover, you can't. It's the same as the Day of Atonement that I mentioned before. What do you do at Passover according to the Bible? The Israelite males living in the Promised Land go to the temple and sacrifice a lamb. And again, if I made a list of what you do in a biblical Passover, what can you do today? We just go down the list and go cross, 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 almost all the way down. I have to say, there's not, though, not just one thing like fasting this time. There's a few. You can eat unleavened bread. You could eat bitter herbs, so on. So there's a few more things where you could give a tick, but most of the way down the list, you'd cross it all off. And for the key things, going to the temple and making a sacrifice, since Jesus' death and resurrection, that's impossible. So you can't keep a Passover. And what Jewish people are doing today is a rabbinic Passover that bears very little resemblance to a biblical Passover in the Old Testament. Saddens me quite a lot to see fellow Jewish Christians keeping a modern Passover and thinking that they're pleasing God by obeying the Bible. But to me, far worse would be Gentile Christians keeping a modern rabbinic Passover, thinking that's what they should be doing as Christians. And in fact, Paul is much stronger in the Bible. So in Galatians 4... Verse 8, he says, Formerly, speaking to Gentile Christians, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? The word there is the word he used for idolatry, pagan idolatry. 
Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I may have wasted my efforts on you. So incredibly strong. He's saying if Gentile Christians go back to keeping an Old Testament Passover, it's the same as going back to pagan idolatry. And that was a biblical Old Testament Passover. Now, you don't want to go too far and don't mishear me. Is it wrong to keep a modern Jewish festival? I'd say no, not at all. Definitely not wrong. You just need to realise that it's got absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. So why a Gentile Christian would want to keep it is uh, a bit beyond me, but Jewish Christians like Jeff and I, we will often join our family for a Passover meal because that's part of our culture and heritage and I can't see anything wrong about keeping a modern Jewish Passover. And uh, I think there are things that everyone here would do that are cultural. We might watch TV or movies. Um, We might, if we haven't read that book yet, let our kids play video games or watch TV, um, go to the beach, swim at the pool. There's various things that you will do that are cultural. And for Jewish people, joining in festivals like the Passover and other things are cultural things that they might do Jewish Uh, Jewish people who are Christian and not Christian. So freedom in Christ, I think, doesn't mean you shall not. So freedom from the law doesn't mean you shall not keep the law. Freedom from the law means whether you keep the law is neither here nor there. No longer matters. You're now under Christ. So in the first century, Jewish Christians actually often did continue to keep the law. So you could look it up later, but in Acts chapter 21, Acts 21, 17 to 26 talks about there being thousands of Jewish Christians who are still keeping the law, keeping the festivals, and uh, I, I don't hear it when I read it as being a negative. So it's just saying they had the choice to keep the laws or, and festivals or not. Heaps of them continued to keep them. So freedom in Christ doesn't mean you must not keep Jewish festivals, even modern, modern rabbinic ones that have little to do with the Bible. So freedom in Christ means you can join in. And even if you're a Gentile Christian, uh, in terms of 1 Corinthians 9 being all things to all men, if you have Jewish friends you're trying to share the gospel with, or you are a missionary to the Jews, that's a Gentile, you would keep Jewish festivals and stuff in order to be all things to all men. So freedom from the law doesn't mean you can't keep it, it means it's neither here nor there. So uh, a final verse, Paul says in Romans 14, verse 5, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. So some people think there's no festivals. Uh, The Puritans didn't keep Christmas. No Christmas, no Easter, no nothing. Paul's saying, fine. Uh, Other people might keep all sorts of festivals like Christmas and Easter or Jewish festivals or whatever. Paul says, that's fine too. It just doesn't matter one way or the other. Fulfilment in Christ means that such festivals, whether they're Christian, Jewish, rabbinic, whatever, are neither here nor there. Keeping them, not keeping them, doesn't matter. If you're a bit confused by this point, you might understand why people continually had a go at the Apostle Paul. Anyway, my point is, to finish before we take questions, as Christians, you have it all. Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And when God comes in judgment, his judgment will pass over us because it has already been taken on Jesus himself 
in his death on the cross. And that's what Passover is all about. And the application, I think, is pretty straightforward. We can just thank God again for his salvation, for the fulfilment in Jesus, and that we'll be spared God's wrath to come. So I'll pray, and then I'll take any questions. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We thank you so much that you have spared us uh, the punishment that our sins deserve and that when judgment day comes, we'll be spared your wrath that we deserve. Thank you for your forgiveness, your love for us, your mercy on us in giving Jesus for us. In Jesus' name, we, we thank you and praise you. Amen.